0: Hyperion to a satyr. Welcome to the seventh episode of Hyperion to a satyr, the Fire and Water Podcast Network's Hamlet podcast. I'm your host, Siskoid, your guide on a scene-by-scene, deep-dive look at Shakespeare's masterwork through the lens of not only the text, but many film, television, comics, and music adaptations. Today we're talking about Act 1, Scene 5, which will split into two parts. Part 1, The Ghost's Tale. The first half of this scene is a long piece of exposition, but it sets up the action, or inaction, if you like, of the play. Directors must here find a balance between making a visual meal of the ghost's appearance and keeping the audience focused on the words. Some have tried flashbacks to the day of the murder, but most have let the actor do the heavy lifting. There is more at stake in this decision than first meets the eye. If you show flashbacks, you are implying the ghost's account is true, grounding the words in a reality that the audience can think back to. It's a legitimate choice, but one that removes at least one layer of ambiguity to the ghost and Hamlet relationship. Or does it? Depending on how it's staged, the ghost may be flashing to a fiction, or Hamlet may be flashing to his own imagination. For fans of the dishonest ghost theory, the opening of the scene has to be important evidence. We've just had a scene shift, and the ghost has gone from appearing around midnight to needing to leave soon, so dawn. And Hamlet has to stop it and initiate the conversation. If he hadn't stopped it, would the ghost have led him to those tormenting fires that he mentions? The implication is there for those who wish to see it, though few have pursued the idea of an evil ghost on the silver screen. So the ghost says, "...I am thy father's spirit, doomed for a certain term to walk the night, and for the day confined to fast in fires, till the foul crimes done in my days of nature are burnt and purged away." that Hamlet Sr. was murdered without confession or last rites, we know from later in the speech. Less time is spent thinking about what he needed to confess. Foul crimes may cover more than the normal wages of war. In this line, Shakespeare implies that Hamlet Sr. may not be any better than his brother Claudius. Ironically, in his speech that talks a lot about listening and ears, Hamlet does not pick up on this. Compared to his later admission, To Ophelia, that he he himself is proud, revengeful, and ambitious. The same violence or sin is inside him, but everything remains merely potential. Okay, the ghost. But that I am forbid to tell the secrets of my prison house. Now, to Hamlet, Denmark is or becomes a prison. There is an interesting comparison to be made between the ghosts imprisoned in hell or purgatory, but freed at night to cause havoc, and then the living Hamlet walking freely about, uh, trapped in his own angst and unable to do anything about it. Hamlet's first reaction to the story is to paint himself as a potential avenging angel, a contrast to the hellish metaphors used by the ghost. While Hamlet talks uh, of wings on which to carry his father's revenge, the ghost says... I find thee apt, and duller shouldst thou be than the fat weed that roots itself in ease on Lethe Wharf. There's a strong theme about remembrance in the play. How long should one grieve and respect the departed, which mixes with the hellish visions of the ghost? here? The River Lethe takes your memory, and the ghost warns Hamlet not to let himself forget him. If a director or actor wants the ghost to be imaginary it is useful to note that the ghost seems to share Hamlet's own concern about his apparently forgotten father. It is given out that sleeping in mine orchard a serpent stung me. So the whole ear of Denmark is by a forged process of my death rankly abused. But now thou noble youth, the serpent that did sting thy father's life now wears his crown. The story of Hamlet Sr.'s murder itself evokes the Garden of Eden. He is Adam, Hamlet's progenitor, and Claudius is Satan. Gertrude as Eve has a role to play. Sleeping in my orchard, a serpent stung me. So we also know the first mention of the king's ear, which in the usual royal metaphor is also that of Denmark. There's a pun at work here. He was physically poisoned through the ear, while Denmark was metaphorically poisoned by being fooled into accepting a new status quo by whatever words were dripped into its ear. Hamlet kind of knew it. Oh, my prophetic soul. My uncle. According to Borges, this is the worst line Shakespeare ever wrote. Agree? Disagree? In any case, the ghost answers, I, that incestuous, that adulterate beast, and so on. It starts not with the murder, but with the love affair. Is he suggesting adultery was committed before murder? The ghost's words mirror Hamlet's own about that new union. And if the ghost is a figment of his imagination, it would share them, of course. In the story of the poisoning, the royal body is here described as a city, the natural gates and alleys of the body. Lest we forget that Denmark has also been abused. And when he says he was sent to the afterlife with all his imperfections on his head... This will, of course, play off Hamlet refusing to kill Claudius while he prays. But throughout the speech, the ghost is careful not to implicate Gertrude in Claudius' sins, even if we know full well that it takes two to tango. The best explanation is that the ghost is still in love with her, which doesn't necessarily point to an honest ghost. His blind love may lead him to get Hamlet to kill Claudius out of jealousy. Except, we do know Claudius is guilty. The glowworm shows the madden to be. Unaffectual fire. Another bizarre animal reference in the ghost's speech, after that of the uh, porpentine, or porcupine, earlier. Between those and the serpent, the ghost creates an atmospheric wordscape that is both surreal and foul, where staging and set dressing may not have had that option. The ghost vanishes, which leads Hamlet to ask, shall I couple hell? The implied stage direction is that Hamlet throws himself to the ground, perhaps. But of course, it's got a double meaning, Coupling hell means joining forces with evil and so on, but Hamlet does swear to remember his father and make him the only thing he thinks about. Remember thee? Yea, from the table of my memory, I'll wipe away all trivial, fond records that youth and observation copied there, and thy commandment all alone shall live within the book and volume of my brain, unmixed with baser matter. Yes, by heaven! There's a promise he'll soon break, filling his head with all sorts of things. Perhaps it takes the whole of the play to purge away all thoughts that do not have to do with revenge. Or perhaps Hamlet comes to realize that his revenge intersects everything that he's ever thought about. To unmix with base matter is not possible. The book metaphor he uses, fitting for a professional student, foreshadows the fact that he's not a man of action, but a man of study. Here, Shakespeare wipes the slate clean. Hamlet rewrites his own character, which is the triumph of the play. Hamlet overwrites his own psychology, and a new man shall emerge. Is this insanity, or a new form of sanity?" Hamlet is the self-made, self-written man, and he must finish his work himself before he can fulfill his destiny. He can only revenge his father when he's ready and he's not ready until he is complete as a character. Shakespeare will have him think about a large number of things, mortality, love, art, etc., before taking him to his ultimate end. But as for how quickly he forgets his father, well, his next line is, "O most pernicious woman. So already, Hamlet has forgotten his father's edict that his mother be absolved of wrongdoing. Hamlet is such a powerful character, or or mind, if you like, that he is never forced to follow the expected plot. He follows his own thoughts, where they will lead him, aggressively ignoring other characters and their roles in the drama. He's just been given a mission, and the proper hero would complete it, overcoming complications along the way. But Hamlet is his own complication, and does not follow the usual rules of drama— somehow trying to approach true self-determination despite being a written character. Of course, film versions make a lot of choices, uh, most principally how the ghost is played, so let's get to it, starting with Branagh's. He creates a small patch of hell slash purgatory in Denmark for the encounter between Hamlet and the ghost. Blasted trees and smoke coming out of cracks in the earth, the look is extreme enough that you'd believe Hamlet to be transported to this halfway place, so that his friends, who are supposed to be following close behind, cannot find him until the ghost finishes his speech. At first, the ghost is just a disembodied voice, but soon appears, armored and floating above ground, eyes so blue they are supernaturally white. The often over-the-top Brian Blessed plays the ghost, but is suitably transformed by the performance. First, there's the makeup that make him paler than his usual self, and the distinctive angles of the beaver, it's that piece on the helmet, following those of his own face. But beyond that is the way he delivers the speech. Where Blessed excels at boisterousness, here he only whispers. This reigns in his great ego and plays on the intimacy of the scene. That intimacy carried through in the visuals with tight close-ups dominating. As the murder is revealed, we get in tighter than is comfortable on the character's mouths. Kind of a rosebud moment that might, might well, be on purpose. It's part of a visual triptych, getting very close to their mouths and eyes and on the bleeding ear of the murdered king. They are visuals emblematic of what is foul, strange, and unnatural. This is an ugly murder, and the film uses flashbacks to show it. Gory, painful, and distressing. Even Claudius is shaken, by how violent it all is. The flashbacks show us the snowbound orchard in which Hamlet Sr. sleeps, and it has a, a sort of fairy tale quality. The beauty of the environment is in deep contrast with what happens here, and with the blasted wasteland of the present-day scene. Denmark will soon go from this to the unweeded garden of Hamlet's first soliloquy. The flashbacks also give us a glimpse into Hamlet's family life, As he puts the pieces together, things that used to perhaps only rankle now seem to him entirely sinister. In particular, there's a scene in which the whole family, uncle and all, play some version of shuffleboard. Hamlet's father, in these shots, appears as an entirely positive figure, noble and loving. And of course, Hamlet's memory may be rose-tinted. We see that father and son have a particular bond, but also that they leave Gertrude behind to have fun with Claudius. What used to be innocent and friendly hugging now appears to be an adulterous seduction. These were the privileged relationships before the play's action. Again, this is all in Hamlet's imagination, which doesn't confirm the ghost's honesty. The flashes to the murder do imply it, but it remains a matter of interpretation. As the ghost departs, Hamlet reaches for his hand, but it fades away. He falls to the ground, coupling hell, and the music swells. This is a moment of decision. Branna drools a lot in the next speech, which is rife for interpretation if he's clearing his mental table to leave only his father's revenge. We might see this as Hamlet leaving behind niceties of courtly politeness, or he may be losing his mind, becoming more animalistic and less self-aware. This would go against his father's edict that he taint not his mind, but then the whole play is about Hamlet tainting his mind with madness and or doubt. He swears on his sword, kissing it, something he will ask his friends to do in the next section. The kiss is part of the overall intimacy of the scene, and there is without a doubt some sexual allegory to be found in his coupling the earth, kissing a sword, and then apparently starting the next act by renouncing Ophelia. The baser matter that he rejects includes the pleasures of the body, something his Puritan ideals weren't far from already, embracing his revenge, the sword, a calamitous situation, hell itself, and his nation, the Earth, instead. Olivier's version of the ghost is an off-putting creature. Everything about it makes you uneasy, which is at once its power and its weakness. It is very hard to empathize with this stiff-faced puppet, with its badly synchronized lip movement and strange whispering tone. Sometimes the blurry lens and obscuring smoke are quite effective in creating this otherworldly being at other times, it just looks like a great big smudge. The technical considerations tend to create some very static shots through this whole sequence. Olivia changes it up near the halfway point, as the story of the murder is told, and we're allowed to see it, or at least a version of it, When the camera moves in on the back of Hamlet's head, this avant-garde maneuver is ambiguous. On the one hand, you'd think that it would be Hamlet's imagination because the flashback is in his head. However, the camera's behavior in the film is often that of a floating spirit moving around Elsinore looking for action, often from strange vantage points. Though the ghost is standing in front of Hamlet, it's kind of like it's moving inside his head and showing him the images. In this memory, Hamlet Sr. sleeps through the poisoning and wakes up when pain strikes. The poisoner's face is obscured by the mists around the scene. When the king turns around and sees his murderer's face, so do we, though through a haze. Now, Hamlet already knows the identity of the poisoner because the ghost prefaced his tale with this revelation. Why then don't we see Claudius from the start of the memory? It's because we are definitely experiencing the murder from the king's point of view. It's perhaps no wonder it unhinges his mind. There's a nice editing choice as the vision ends. All we see is the king's hand reaching for his killer and then dying. Hamlet reaches for it as the two scenes are mixed together. As again, a director attempts to connect father and son through the veil of death. The ghost leaves as he arrived, with telltale pulsing heartbeats that affect the camera as much as the sound. Hamlet swoons and keels over. The camera again, I suspect the ghost spirit, flies up and goes through the clouds. When Hamlet awakes, he's whirling his arms about, throwing his sword down, and going from manic to despondent from one moment to the next. Since Hamlet is alone with his thoughts, it seems like Olivia has chosen to make him mad at this point. He's not faking it for the benefit of the court later, or at least not entirely. The BBC version with Derek Jacobi features another ghost heading for the edge of the cliff before Hamlet puts the brakes on it. So again, we have an ambiguous spirit who may or may not want to doom Hamlet, either way it does by the play's end. Patrick Allen is a rather stern ghost, speaking with anger more than torment in clipped authoritarian tones. He's a soldier in full armor, but is this also how we should understand the father-son relationship? A severe taskmaster for whom things are black and white and who entertains no questions? O oh, wicked wit and gifts that have the power so to seduce, one to his shameful lust the will of my most seeming virtuous queen! Oh, Hamlet, what a falling off was there. He only breaks at O oh, Hamlet, what a falling off was there, moving from anger to genuine sadness at his wife's situation. It's like he regrets what poor Gertrude is going through, being defiled without really knowing it by her husband's murderer. There may be a production-based reason for the ghost's clipped speech pattern. This is a very theatrical production, with little to no special effects. The whole effect is achieved with a little dry ice, some blue lights reflecting off the armor, and absolutely no treatment on the voice there certainly isn't a flashback sequence. So we may understand from this why an actor would choose to run through the speech as quickly as possible before the audience gets restless at what is essentially the play's biggest info dump. Alan has at least found a way to do this that sounds natural. As for Hamlet, he's obviously shaken by the ghost's appearance, reaching for it ineffectually almost through the whole thing. When he learns the identity of his father's murderer, he shows no surprise. Disgust! for that individual comes easily. The one clear thing in his life is his hatred for Claudius. In reaction to other elements, he's more confused, though. He completely breaks down when he learns his father was killed without the proper rights, which fits the Wittenbergian Christian ideals Hamlet often exalts. Murder is one thing, but murder with the express purpose of sending one to hell is quite another. The reaction highlights not how brutal the murder was, as flashback sequences tend to do, but how cowardly it was. Claudius poisons a sleeping man and does not even give him the chance to say a prayer. In other words, he didn't plan for Hamlet Sr. to even wake up and confront him. To Hamlet, that makes the sin greater still. As one might suppose royalty of this era would have proper rules for coups, a slight change in the script has the two characters share how horrible this all is. Oh, horrible! Most So Hamlet says, oh horrible, horrible, and then the ghost confirms it, most horrible. Then the ghost simply backs away, out of shot, and Hamlet lets out a profound scream and collapses. Jacoby has his Hamlet take a quick dip into madness here, but does he ever come out of it? That would be telling. In the speech that follows, he looks at each of his hands in turn and then slaps himself repeatedly on the head on the line, so uncle, there you are. It's a physical representation of having emptied his mind of everything, save the thing he hates. He hits himself because that's all he is now, the mirror of Claudius, who must kill a family member. With Jacoby's mercurial Hamlet, the performance changes from moment to moment, so it's hard to say at this point if he walks away from the edge the ghost led him to. Moving on to Zeffirelli's version, Hamlet runs up to the highest platform in Elsinore, and there he finds the ghost skulking in a dark corner. The opening dialogue is one of many cuts made to this scene, so Hamlet does not here stop the ghost in its tracks. There's no ambiguity about the spirit's intentions. He's not bringing him towards the edge. In fact, Paul Schofield may just be the most sympathetic ghost ever committed to film. He does not appear in armor, lines relating to this were all cut, but as a sad and weak old man, not unlike his portrayal of the French king in Branagh's Henry V there is anguish in his voice and defeat in his posture hamlet is visibly moved by all this you know mel gibson keeping the danish prince's emotions always very close to the surface the ghost speech is very much cut down and being as long as it is i guess that was a natural place for the director to do so of course any time you cut text you might hurt the play's meaning in this case brief let me be is the order of business from the start as the ghost gets right down to the business of recounting his murder. One of the things that changes is the relationship between father and son. Because in the text, the ghost is much more severe. He tests and judges his son. I find the apt. Hmm. And in many ways, manipulates him into avenging his murder. He repeatedly forbids Hamlet from forgetting him, perhaps sensing that his son is not the most proactive of people. Most of that is lost in this version. Leaving us with a more trustworthy and less ambiguous ghost. He doesn't flaunt his own virtues at the expense of Claudius's. He doesn't over-egg the vile details of his murder. The text has been slashed, but Schofield takes it and creates a memorable performance with it. Uh, You feel for this ghost, in a way that you usually don't. At the end, he reaches with both hands towards Hamlet, and one tear drops off his face. Hamlet closes his eyes and, the well, the touch never comes. The ghost is gone by the time he opens them again. Gibson's Hamlet feels everything viscerally and is enraged by this revelation. He runs down to look once again on his uncle's party uh, where he raves and rants out of earshot. Zeffirelli uses the castle geography to create strong staging for this part of the scene when Hamlet goes on about that pernicious woman while he's looking down on her. So, uncle, there you are. Likewise, sets Hamlet's eyes on the object of his rage. On, meet it as I set it down, Hamlet physically writes his thoughts in the stones with his sword, writing that turns into violent but ineffectual slashing. That's Hamlet all over, isn't it? Seeing Hamlet in such a rage does beg a question. Why does he later have so much difficulty carrying out his revenge? It seems that had Claudius been just a little closer, he might have been killed right then and there. This might be an important chink in this version's armor. While effective movie making, the performance may not make sense, according to the text. Did Hamlet want the revenge to fit the crime better? Did he want to see Claudius suffer more? Are there political reasons for doing it, Pat? Zephyr really removes most of the political context from the play, so that's, that's a hard sell. Whatever the reason for the delay, and we'll have a chance to discuss the possibilities in coming episodes, of course, it allows doubt to creep into Hamlet's mind, leading to tragedy. But the director will have to justify his vision of a Hamlet with far less self-control. Fast forward ten years to Hamlet 2000. Sam Shepard is, without a doubt, my favorite ghost, and the power of his performance... In this scene, probably has a great deal to do with why it only suffered nips and tucks, where other speeches in this version were ruthlessly cut down. His is a very solid ghost, starting on Hamlet's balcony and waiting for him to open the door before he enters. He doesn't walk through walls, he's not accompanied by mists, and he's able to corner Hamlet, grab him, literalize the image of the prince's hair standing on end by physically grabbing it, and ending on an emotional hug before vanishing off-camera, without going back to the door. This last thing is the only real manifestation of his being a spirit. There need be no special effects when the simple act of holding a handkerchief to his poisoned ear is creepy enough. Stigmata, revealing details of his murder. Shepard presents a complex ghost, haunted by his prison house. His voice breaks when he speaks of being merciful to Gertrude. He's restrained, full of fury, but always catching himself before he goes too far. He does so just before... But soft, brief, let me be, as if realizing that he's off on a rant. That he let his emotions get the better of him. Soft. He thinks I scent the morning air. Brief, let me be. The ghost becomes a threefold mirror in this scene. Of course, he's a mirror of Hamlet himself. How far has the apple fallen from the tree? Will Hamlet let his own emotions run rampant? Or will he, like his father, hold them in before taking a step too far? And as always, he's a mirror of Claudius, his brother and false father to Hamlet. Claudius, too, holds back his true self and only lets it out when emotion overwhelms him. And then there's Polonius, another father, who says he will be brief while uttering the most interminable speeches. Polonius is a fool because he does not catch himself, as Hamlet Sr. does. While the ghost imparts the argument of the play, Polonius has it all wrong and gives a false argument to the king and queen later. Though the repeated word brief, a pun, as both scenes are sort of a briefing, maybe, Shakespeare links the two expositions. However, he makes one relevant and the other irrelevant. Shepard's performance is touching, but there remains a sense of danger throughout, He's in Hamlet's face as the prince tries to back away. The camera follows them around the room, slightly spinning, lending a giddy energy to the scene that could well represent Hamlet's impending madness. When the ghost disappears, this sequence ends without Hamlet's speech. Parts of it show up in Act 1's ultimate sequence, in voiceover, but we don't see Hamlet swearing to avenge his father's murder. This is merely, but efficiently, inferred. Fodor's more experimental treatment gives us another very physical ghost, but this one is unsympathetic, violent, and malevolent. From the moment he appears, he's striking his son and grabbing him by the hair. How creepy is this ghost when it smiles, whenever it speaks of murder, and transforms every act of fatherly affection into some kind of tense violence, such as when it pinches Hamlet's cheek really hard. As we discussed in scene four, the ghost here is more devil than man. Has hell corrupted his soul, or was he always this kind of person? Is he, in fact, a demon sent to damn Hamlet, entirely justifying the prince's delays? It may turn out that the ghost was right about Claudius, but does it truly want revenge for its own sake, or is it just an opportunity for Satan to collect some extra souls? Notably, this ghost never says the oh Horrible lines perhaps quite happy to walk into the fires of hell. It is given out that sleeping in mine orchard, a serpent stung me. So the whole year of Denmark is by a forged process of my death rankly abused. But know thy noble youth. The serpent that did sting thy father's life now wears his crown. Sound design does a lot of the work here. The ghost words have a whispery echo, but you can also hear every wet sound that comes out of the actor's mouth. It's almost stomach-churning. Because the first confrontation between Hamlet and his parents was cut, we have a Hamlet who harbors no particular resentments towards Claudius. The murder for him is a complete surprise. Therefore, he doesn't say, my prophetic soul, when the murderer's identity is spoken. This is an important shift in the play, as it doesn't taint Hamlet's motivation with a certain sense of wish fulfillment. In the text, there is a reason to believe that Hamlet imagines the ghost, because after all, the thing never speaks except to him, so what if it's a vision and never really speaks at all? And we can think that because it sends him exactly on the mission he wants to undertake already. It justifies his own murderous impulse. Here, he has no such bent. The ambiguity of Hamlet's motivation is restored by the way the scene ends, not with the usual swearing speech, but by the voice of Horatio, who pulls him out of his reverie. This was all in his mind, and he hasn't moved from his waiting position. It's still night, no morning air line. It's a perfectly reasonable wait for a spirit to communicate with the living, but if it was an unmotivated hallucination, then Hamlet may well be mad. And yet, because he has no prior negative feelings for Claudius at least on screen, there doesn't seem to be a reason for his imagination to act up this way. Fodor does tend to take a problem play and just give it more problems. Tennant's Hamlet follows the ghost into the misshrouded main set to confront his father's spirit. The ghost is very angry at first, but mellows as the scene continues. Patrick Stewart's performance gets especially interesting when he starts telling the story of the murder and seems to relive it in the absence of a flashback sequence, which you would not normally have the luxury of in a stage production, this recreates the events without having to mime them. Oh, Horrible, then, is the ghost's entry into hell as he's experiencing it once more. Thus was I sleeping by a brother's hand of life of crown and queen at once dispatched. Oh, Horrible! Most horrible! Oh, God! If thou hast nature in thee, bear it not! When this ghost talks of the morning air, he does not find it threatening, but more like a nostalgic memory. The glow worm shows the matin to be near, and gins to pale his ineffectual fire. Here is what he has lost. Not only his life, crown and queen, but to never again see the sun rise or experience the joys of nature. And this is a man who used to sleep in the outdoors and who uses a lot of animal imagery. He has a kinship with the land and as a king is the symbol of it, from which he has been divorced. As with the other two modern dress adaptations examined by this series, the ghost manifestation is a solid physical one. He grabs Hamlet and almost throttles him when supplicating him to bear it not, a gesture that turns into the final embrace before he leaves in a puff of smoke, taking the supernatural mists with him. And what follows is Hamlet's transformation. He collapses and starts running his fingers through his hair by going from the perfect haircut of the early scenes to the wild more modern style doctor who fans know and love so well tennant physicalizes the character's new wildness if not outright madness and there is reason to believe director gregory doran means for his hamlet to be mad With an odd jump cut in the middle of the scene creating a disjointed look. I'm not entirely sure it works as a piece of editing, but nonetheless the effect is appropriately off-putting. A mind that snaps. Hamlet's crazy eyes and smile are equally off-putting. Oh, villain. Villain. Smiling, damned villain. My tables, meet it is. I set it down, that one may smile. And smile. And be a villain. At least, I'm sure it may be so in Denmark. Here he's definitely talking about himself as much as Claudius. He will now smile, act the madman, and appear disarming, but he is in truth a villain, a would-be murderer. This is Hamlet coming up with the madness idea, and I wonder why I never really picked up on that line before. Because it seems so natural here. Hamlet goes on to swear his oath, Not upon a kiss on his sword, but by slashing a switchblade through the palm of his hand, at which point he collapses again. That's a much more violent swearing, and one that is informed by more modern scenes of this ilk in other media. It speaks both to his madness – self-harm is not sane – and to the seriousness of his oath, that he's ready to shed his own blood to achieve his revenge, as well as provides a shock ending to this sequence. The idea that Hamlet even carries such a weapon tells us he is able to kill – When staged in more ancient times, this isn't needed, but in a modern dress adaptation, the audience expects less of this kind of thing. The audience tends to assume modern morality and law are a part of such a world, especially in the protagonist. With its for boys fixation, the original classics illustrated adaptation gives up almost two pages to the ghosts meeting with Hamlet, removing entirely the prince's lines at the end uh, when he's alone. The flashback to the murder does include an interesting component we haven't seen elsewhere, how the queen learned of her husband's death. For the sake of efficiency, and these comics are very compressed and efficient, she and Hamlet find the body and Claudius is lurking in the background. Though the comic doesn't dwell on psychological verisimilitude, we might wonder what kind of impact that discovery would have on Gertrude. Indeed, part of why she's considered to be underwritten is that she never really talks about Hamlet Sr., except to tell Hamlet to forget about him. If events were as pictured here, we might justify the omission by saying she's in denial, keeping that image out of her mind, even refusing to bring it up. But either way, she has had to move on for the good of the state, and may be pragmatic, where Hamlet is sentimental. With Hamlet's subsequent speech cut, we have no way of knowing if he's fallen into madness or even if he has sworn to avenge his father's murder. Such things will be revealed visually later. In the more modern painted version issued by Berkeley, the ghost leads Hamlet to an elevated blasted wood not unlike the hellish forest of Branagh's Hamlet. The ghost's speech is represented with letters that do not follow a straight line and shaky speech bubbles with chaotic contours. We might imagine this iconography makes the ghost's voice echo in an unearthly way. Artist Tom Mandrake makes good use of lettering later, as well as, as, well as when he has Hamlet whisper certain lines thanks to smaller script. Oh, my prophetic soul, for example, is spoken under his breath. Denoting a sudden realization. The ghost's beard streaks away as if part of the fog, something Mandrake uses strikingly in the body of the speech. There's no flashback sequence here. Mandrake instead gives us the figure of the ghost posing with his sword. Is he offering an avenging blade to Hamlet, threatening him with it, visually recreating the serpent's sting? Usually, Hamlet has the sword and swears by it. By holding the sword in this scene, the ghost more firmly contrasts its action with Hamlet's inaction. Or you could say that while the ghost is mentally able to take revenge, it is not physically able to do so. So For Hamlet, it turns out to be the reverse. Two other things of note. First, this is another instance of Hamlet stealing the Oh Horrible line away from the ghost. Second, the speech ends early, and the ghost does not scent the morning air. More importantly, he does not admonish Hamlet to leave his mother alone. So in this version of the story, when Hamlet is bitter and cruel towards his mother... He's not ignoring his father's edict. Though the words themselves are cut, Hamlet still couples hell. In a very wet one, by the looks of things, the rank garden is here a filthy swamp, and there Hamlet sees his uncle. I don't think we have a fouler hell-coupling image in any other adaptation. Hamlet really gets down and dirty in this. And finally, Johnny Halliday covers this sequence with not one, but three entire songs. Prière du Spectre Hamlet, The Ghost, Praise Hamlet, has the ghost asking Hamlet to avenge him. Roi Vivant, Living King, represents the bulk of the ghost's story. And J'effacerai de ma mémoire, I will erase from my memory, deals with Hamlet swearing to avenge his father. The first song starts out as the Le Vieux Roi est mort, The Old King is Dead, dirge, But as soon as Halliday starts singing, a blues-pop feel comes to thwart expectations. the song describes the ghost as a shadow, dark and hellish. Only in the last couple lines is it revealed to be the father of Hamlet, and even there, Halliday doesn't let go of the ghost's ambiguity. It is a shadow in the shape of his father, which doesn't make it his actual father. As with Hamlet's questioning of Horatio's story in scene two, the ghost is required to convince the doubting Hamlet in the play by giving details of his murder in the rock opera with another song. In fact, Roi Vivant, though on a separate track with its own title, musically just continues straight from Priere, the last note of one covering the starting piano riffs of the other. It sounds like another movement of the same piece with backup singers coming in with their part, and indeed, it is. It's all the same scene. The first three lines are sung by the chorus, outside voices commenting on the action, where most songs are in Hamlet's voice. They ask the ghost to stay and tell his story, a different take on I will go no further that turns it into Hamlet's first test of the ghost's agenda. Hamlet takes nothing at face value, and here he doubts his father's words. He needs proof in the form of details. Do these details ring true? An interesting thing that's done in these opening lines is that pa pas don't go, Sounds a lot like Papa, calling out to the father through the sound of the words. There's a spoken section in the ghost's voice. The music evokes courtly medieval music, and so, the past. It tells the story of the murder, but does not reveal the murderer's identity. Either the audience's knowledge of the play is taken for granted, or it becomes more of a murder mystery. Not that there are many suspects, other than Claudius, seeing as all the songs uniformly looked down on him, but possibly, had the rock opera been successfully staged, the action on stage would have made it clear. The poison is represented by a snake, continuing the Garden of Eden metaphor from the play. Oh, what a falling off was there, almost seems to refer to Genesis. And there's a strong play on the epithets, each one used as a punchy reveal, because in French, the adjectives come after the noun rather than before it. The practice continues in the next section as acoustic guitar riffs and the chorus take over. Those last lines take Hamlet Sr. from living king to forgotten king in four short phrases. Then repeat them in a fade, cycling towards an actual end and sending the ghosts back into shadow. Third song. Halliday takes the table of memory metaphor and runs with it. Though in the play, Hamlet enumerates what he erases from his memory to make room for his revenge, Halliday gets more specific in a way that only the ballad form can. He erases his childhood, then his youth, and so on, until he's actually erasing his future, dooming himself. He has no future except as an instrument of his father's revenge. In the last stanza, he jumps into the void to join his father, making their missions one and the same by osmosis. This mirrors what is usually done in the play, with Hamlet collapsing at the end of the sequence. The empty space he has created in his mind is akin to the empty space under the earth where his father is doomed to walk, which at the very least is empty of God's love in Christian cosmology. The next time we see Hamlet in the rock opera, he will have gone mad, as heralded here. Halliday leaves little room for ambiguity on that point. And, well, that ends our look at Act 1, Scene 5, Part 1. Next time, just a lot of swearing oaths. If you have thoughts on this particular episode, please head over to FireAndWaterPodcast.com and put keyboard to digital paper. And if you like this content, think about visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope you, dear listener, will return for Act 1, Scene 5, Part 2, Swearing Oaths. You silence.